All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. And obviously, we're in the early part of the book of Hebrews, and yet we still need to kind of set this in its context. So the book of Hebrews opens in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, by just jumping right in and introducing the main character and really the main theme of the book, that is Jesus and his supremacy, Jesus and his majesty. And notice how verse 4 ends. Verse 4 ends by mentioning Jesus' superiority to the angels by virtue of inheriting a much better name than they have. Well, that's where this section in 1, 5 through 14 picks up. It picks up with angels, and specifically with Jesus inheriting a better name than them. And so the author of Hebrews sets out to demonstrate Jesus' superiority over the angels with a string of Old Testament passages. And what he shows is that Jesus is the Son. That's the better name that he's inherited. He's the Son, and that's a far superior name or title to the name that the angels have who are servants and messengers. And so, in the pattern of Hebrews that we highlighted in the backstory, this is explanation. The book of Hebrews works by giving some explanation and then exhortation and then explanation and then some more exhortation. This is explanation. And the point that is specifically being made here is that the son, Jesus, although he's not called that until chapter two, the son is superior to angels. And to make this point, the author strings together six Old Testament passages. So let's work down through this. We'll note where these texts come from as we hit each one of them. And so beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, it says, for, notice that he begins by explaining. He's explaining the better name that the son had. And so for, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. And that's where we get, that's the better name. Son, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. And this quote is from Psalm chapter 2, specifically Psalm 2, 7. Psalm 2 is a royal ascension psalm. Here's what that means is it's describing the coronation of a king. The ascension of a king to his throne, the crowning day of his kingship, that's what Psalm 2 is all about. And it's specifically focusing on a great Davidic king, a king in the line of David. Well, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He is the ultimate king on David's throne. And so the focus here is on Jesus's coronation as son. What was true in part or in principle for the early kings of David's dynasty is true in fact and fully for Jesus. He indeed is God's son who is reigning over all. In fact, you see that same connection made in Luke chapter 1 verse 32 where uh, the promise to Mary is that she's going to have a son. He will be in the line of David and he will reign on his throne forever and ever. That's what Gabriel tells Mary. You also see the same idea in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 where Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. This is all getting at his kingship. And Psalm chapter 2 as a royal ascension psalm is based 
on the common practice of a really a covenant renewal ceremony at the time of one king handing off the kingship to another, or one king maybe perhaps even dying and thus his successor now taking the throne. And so there would be a ceremony for that. Um, that's the way it worked. And in the ancient Near East, which included Israel under the Old Testament time period, in the ancient Near East, um, you didn't have to be a biological son in order to be the king's successor. As an aging king near the end of his reign, he publicly designated and even sometimes anointed before his death uh, a person that he had chosen to be his successor, and that person would be deemed his son. That's what we're focusing on here. And so when it says, you are my son, today I have fathered you, or some of the older translations that say, today I have begotten you, that phrase, today I have fathered or begotten you, doesn't mean give birth to or procreated you. It means I have designated you as my son and thus heir to the throne. That's the force of that phrase in its original ancient Near Eastern context there in, he, uh, in Psalm chapter 2. And the New Testament indicates that the phrase, you are my son, refers specifically to Jesus' ascension to heaven and his subsequent coronation. He is the son of God at his birth. He's the son of God, declared that at his baptism. He's declared the son of God at the transfiguration. But all of those culminate in, as Romans 1.4 says, him being declared the son of God with power by virtue of his resurrection and in Following that, his coronation and being seated at God's right hand. And so, Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is the heir to the throne. Well, the author of Hebrews then follows up this quote from Psalm chapter 2 with another from the same sort of context that really makes the same point. We're emphasizing the fact that the name that the son was given was specifically that, son. And so this next quote comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what it says. And again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. And again, in the original context, the focus was on the royal succession of David's line, that there would be that God was going to put on David's throne in a never-ending succession of kings, um, that he would have somebody on his throne forever. And so this language, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, is that same language that we just talked about from Psalm 2, of appointing somebody to be heir to the throne and thus successor. These words in their original context in 2 Samuel 7 were spoken by Nathan, to David in response to David's desire to build a temple. And Nathan tells David, well, you're not going to be the one to do that. You're going to have a son do that. Specifically, then it refers to Solomon. And therefore, you're going to have a son to do that. And there will be then a dynasty for you that will never end. So it refers to Solomon initially and then the Davidic line of kings. What's the ultimate fulfillment of the line of David? Well, it's the Messiah, David's greater son, Jesus. That's the point in Luke 1 when Gabriel says that to Mary. And that's the point all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the son of David. He is the king on David's throne. So what was true of those earlier kings on David's throne in part 
is true of Jesus completely and fully. And that's important to recognize because when you read 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see that it refers to the sons of David and thus the those that are sons of God in that sense as being kings on David's throne. Um, you'll see that there's references to them committing iniquity and being chastened because of it. Well, that happened to Solomon and it happened to Rehoboam and it happened to other uh, sons of David. But those were initial fulfillments of these words. Jesus is the final and ultimate fulfillment. And so he is the true son of God and he is the true heir of David's throne, the final and ultimate and eternal heir of David's throne. So that's how that passage works, both in its original context and here in Hebrews chapter 1. And so the son is going to be the king and God is his father and he has designated him as heir to his throne. That's the point of those first two quotes. Then he follows that up with another quote. Um, it's a little unclear exactly which specific Old Testament passage it comes from. It could be a couple, so we'll talk about that here in a second. But he follows it up to another quote that puts the Son in relationship to the angels, because that's what we're showing, is how he has been given a higher status and higher position and a greater name than the angels had. And so verse 6 says, And when he, that is God, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, this quote could be from the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 32.43 or the Septuagint version of Psalm 97.7. Either one of those. Probably it's Deuteronomy 32. The language seems a little more precise in the Septuagint to reflect this. Both make the same point, so it's not a huge deal. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, but the idea is summoning the angels to worship the firstborn. That's the main point. So don't lose that in some of the technicalities. A couple of those technicalities to note is the first is just the word again. Um, that word again could be placed in various parts of the sentence. Word order is not a big deal in the Greek language. And so you have to wonder, okay, so what does the word again modify? Uh, it could modify when he brings the firstborn into the world again, like second coming. But that's probably not the point here. The point is simply, and again, like as in again, another quote, which is the way the word again is going to work multiple times through the string of quotes. And that's probably what we have here is just, here's another quote is kind of the idea. So again, when he, God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, da, da, da. that's probably the way the word again works here. What does he mean by firstborn? Well, the word firstborn, prototakos in Greek, is a word that primarily referred to a person designated to receive an inheritance. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word is used in reference to Christ without any qualification. Like we have firstborn of all creation. We have firstborn from the dead. Here we just have a straight up title, firstborn. Um, and the basic meaning is the idea of being heir and that carried with it the idea of authority. It did come on to come to take sort of a secondary meaning at times of the first to do something. That seems to be the idea when Jesus is called 
in Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he's the first one to be raised from the dead. But the basic fundamental meaning is the more common meaning, and it's that idea of inheritance and authority. And that's the meaning here. Jesus is the heir to the throne, as the first two quotes have just pointed out. He is the heir to the throne of David and the throne thus of God. And that position as heir to the throne is now summarized in the title of firstborn. That's the point here. And so when when God brings the firstborn into the world, that is into perhaps the world as it currently is, perhaps the, the world of heavenly beings. That, that, that word world means inhabited world as opposed to an uninhabited world. Here in context, it seems to refer to the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. That seems to be the focus. And so when that happens, God summons all the angels to worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. And as we said, That could refer to either Psalm 97.7 or Deuteronomy 32.43. That could be the source of the quote, but both have to come from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The reason for that is because in Psalm 97, the word is actually in Hebrew, Elohim. Let all the Elohim, all the gods, worship him. But that gets rendered with the word angels, in the Greek version, because it's clarifying what we're referring to there. We're referring to other spiritual powers and spiritual beings. In uh, Deuteronomy 32.43, the Hebrew doesn't even have the line, let all the angels of God worship him, but the Septuagint does. So one of those two places is where the author of Hebrews is deriving this from. And either way, it, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. Either way, the point the author is making by the quote is that the angels are being summoned to worship the firstborn, the king, the Messiah, the one God has appointed to rule over all of his kingdom. That's the point. And thus, clearly, Jesus the Son is superior to the angels since they are being summoned to worship him uh, just as God receives worship. Now, what about the angels? What does he say about them? Well, he quotes another passage, verse 7. And regarding the angels, he says, so concerning the Son, he says, let all the angels worship him. Concerning the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And this is a description of the role and the work of angels. The quote is from Psalm 104, verse 4, and the emphasis of Psalm 104 is on God's sovereignty, his complete sovereignty over all of creation. And the main point, both in Psalm 104 and the point the author of Hebrews is making, is that God is over the angels. They are his servants. They do his bidding in the realm of creation. This is what he says about the angels on the one hand, but on about the Son, on the other hand, he invites the angels to worship them. And not only that, he has more things to say. And so the author of Hebrews is going to continue and say, so that's what he says about the angels. But what does he say about the Son? Well, here's what he says about the Son, verses 8 and 9 and following. Verses 8 and 9 say, but regarding the Son, he says. So in comparison to the angels who are servants who do God's bidding, here's what he says about the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. This quote is from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And the main point being made here in Hebrews is that Jesus is called God. Notice that, right? In verse 8, he's called God, and he rules forever with justice and gladness. That's the idea here. Um, So Psalm 45 was originally written to celebrate the wedding, once again, of a great king in David's line, a great Davidic king. And of course, as we've already noted, the Davidic line, the Davidic dynasty, finds its culmination in Jesus, the Son. So, whereas calling any other king was only appropriate sort of in a way of honoring him as a, in position as God's representative to the people. That's the way kingship worked in the ancient Near East. It's the way it was supposed to work in Israel, that the king was supposed to uh, rule the people in partnership with God as God's representative over them. Um, and so, in a certain sense, you could maybe call a Davidic king, any other king in the line of David, God, but only sort of in a symbolic sort of honoring sort of analogy kind of way. And so the psalm, Psalm 45, pointed forward to something that the the psalmist, the poet, couldn't fully anticipate. Indeed, no Israelite could completely anticipate until it actually happened. Namely, that God himself would become human and he would assume kingship on David's throne. So what was true once by virtue of analogy and by symbol became true in fact in the person of Jesus. The son is king on the throne and he is God. And notice your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's an eternal throne. He's an eternal rule. That's the nature of his kingship. And not only that, his kingship is conducted with righteousness. The scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. He rules, in other words, with justice and righteousness. That's what's going to mark his kingship. In fact, he has loved righteousness and he's hated lawlessness. He's a righteous, just king, and he's going to extend uh, righteousness throughout his kingdom. Therefore, verse 9, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. The idea of anointed is the idea of being anointed as king. It's actually the basic meaning of the Greek word Christ, Christos, or the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. It's it's anointed. He is the anointed one, and it's in kingly context, royal context, it's the idea of being anointed as king. And here, notice that the anointing oil is the oil of joy. What's the point of that? Well, it's picturing his anointing as king as a cause for joyful celebration. In fact, it's joyful celebration above his companions. Who are his companions? Well, there's two options that make good sense in the context of Hebrews and in biblical theology. His companions could be angels, and we're because we're talking about that here, or it actually could be humans. His the members of his kingdom, his brothers and sisters who are part of his kingdom. And it's that latter one that seems to make the most sense of both the psalm in its original context and the psalm as used here in Hebrews. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, 
the companions there are pictured as many sons that God is bringing to glory, uh, whom the firstborn son is not ashamed to call his brothers, his companions. And that's probably the idea here. It's not a huge deal, but that's probably the idea is that when he's anointed as king and takes uh, his throne, it's a cause of celebration for all those people who are a part of his kingdom. Then the author of Hebrews follows that quote up with another quote from the Psalms, a quote that emphasizes the Son as creator and eternal. And so this idea of your throne being forever and ever, in the quote we just read, is really followed up with another quote from another Psalm that emphasizes the forever nature of his rule and his reign. So here is the sixth quote. It says this in verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. And so now the, the author of Hebrews is applying this psalm to the Son, to Jesus, and ascribing to him the divine role as creator. He is the Lord. He is the one who created the earth and the heavens. In other words, the entire universe is the work of his creative power. The quote then continues on to emphasize how creation is temporary, but his kingship is not. So verse 11 says, they will perish. That is the works of your hands, the earth and the heavens will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. That is, they will, they will get old and need to be replaced. In fact, Verse 12 continues on and says, and like a robe, you will roll them up. In other words, that pictures his sovereign control over the whole thing, like a garment. They will need to be changed. It's time to replace them with something else. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. And so he is the creator of all things and he's sovereign over it as creator. It's going to wear out and need to be replaced, but not him. You're the same and your years will not come to an end. He will remain forever. This quote is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 26. It looks forward in the context of Psalm 102. That whole psalm looks forward to the future when the nations will be gathered together and they will be a part of God's kingdom and they too will worship God. The, the whole psalm works like this. The psalmist is in distress and he pours out his complaint to God. He and the city of Jerusalem have experienced God's judgment and wrath. And so he prays for mercy and restoration so that God's people and the nations may gather again, it says, to worship God. That's what Psalm 102 is about. Well, in the context of uh, Jesus and his ministry and the gospel and his resurrection, the early followers of Jesus recognize the, the full restoration has now come in the person of Jesus. And so they see that as uh, speaking of what's happening in their day through Jesus himself. And so applying these words to Jesus makes sense in the context of what has happened in and through him. He, Jesus, is the king through whom God has effected the restoration that the psalmist in Psalm 1 or 2 longed for. And therefore, applying those words of Psalm 102 that in their original context looked like they were only talking about God, it's appropriate to apply them to the one through whom uh, and 
by whom God has actually achieved the long-for restoration of the psalm, that is, Jesus, the Son, now king, ruling with God. And so the author of Hebrews then finishes his string of quotes here in Hebrews chapter 1 with one last quote, one that drives home the contrast between the Son and the angels. It picks up right where we left off in the last quote from Psalm 102, and it also picks up where we started the entire string of quotes with the son being appointed as king and heir and reigning on the throne. And so the final quote here in verse 13 comes from Psalm 110.1. It's actually one of the most quoted Old Testament chapters in the entire New Testament. Here's what verse 1 of Psalm 110 says. Hebrews 1.13. But to which of the angels has he ever said? Again, keeping the contrast in mind. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Notice how this quote is set up with an opening line that is very similar to the opening line of the entire string of quotes. Verse 5 that begins the string opens with, For to which of the angels did he ever say? And here in verse 13, this quote from Psalm 110 is set up with, Now to which of the angels has he ever said? And the idea then is to frame this whole string of quotes with with two royal psalms from the line of David, two royal Davidic psalms. And so that frames the whole string of quotes. This particular one, Psalm 110.1, as I noted, is one of the most quoted Old Testament chapters in the entire New Testament. And it's one of those Davidic psalms, those psalms of David that are about kingship. And the point here in context of Hebrews chapter 1 is that Jesus rules alongside God. Sit at my right hand. So he rules alongside God as king. And together with God, they subordinate all their enemies. And that brings us right back to where the string of quotes started in verse 3. Like in our earlier section, right? With Jesus at God's right hand, right? When When the author of Hebrews opens the book and introduces the main character, Jesus and his majesty, he notes that he's sitting at God's right hand. Well, here we are again. We're at God's right hand. And the imagery of the psalm refers once again to the ascension of a king saying, here, sit at my right hand and any of those people who object to your kingship will reign together until we take care of all those enemies who object to you being king. That's kind of the the human context, the figurative context of the psalm. So theologically, the idea is whatever hostile forces there are that yet remain to be subordinated to your kingship, we will reign until we put all our enemies under our feet. That's the idea. In fact, the Apostle Paul takes that idea and draws out the implication that the last enemy is death itself. There's going to come a day when the final enemy, death itself, is subordinated to King Jesus who reigns on the throne. What's the imagery of footstool? Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, the a picture of the footstool refers to a the custom in the ancient Near East, again, where the psalm originated, to the custom of placing one's foot 
on the necks of conquered enemies. That's the way you would uh, demonstrate that you had triumphed over them. They would bow before you. You would place your foot on their neck, symbolizing they are now under your feet. Um, And so that's the idea. They are going to reign until they make sure all those hostile forces are brought into subjection under their feet. And again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is developing the same idea when he says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the idea of footstool. Um, And so the overall focus of all of these quotes here is upon Christ's appointment as God's son and thus heir to the throne and king who reigns over all of creation. God doesn't give that title and that position to angels. That's for the Son. Who are the angels then? Well, that's where chapter 1 ends in verse 14. Angels are his servants. Verse 14. Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to provide service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Notice that the author uses a rhetorical question to make his final point about angels in relationship to the Son. And what's the assumed answer of that rhetorical question? Yes, yes, they are ministering spirits. Yes, they are servants. And they actually serve those who are going to be a part of the Son's kingdom. This is a positive point about angels. It's not a negative point. It's not like we're somehow, you know, like demeaning angels. It's a positive point, but it's also a subordinate point. They have an important role to play. They are servants of God on behalf of God's people. That's an important role. But nevertheless, it's still a lower role than that of son and heir to the throne. And that's the main point. And so... With seven citations, in fact, note that, seven, seven citations, because seven is a significant number in the scriptures and in Jewish theology. With seven citations, the author of Hebrews demonstrates the superiority of the Son over the angels. And in this way, this paragraph shows us the authority and the majesty and the supremacy of King Jesus. Although he's a human being, Although he was a person who suffered, and the author of Hebrews will come to that in the the next section of explanation, although that's true, he holds the highest place in the universe as God's son and thus reigns with God over the entire universe. That's who he is. That's his incredible role. That's the much better name that he has inherited, son, heir of the throne, ruler of the universe. That's who we worship. That's who Jesus is. Well, that also then will lead into the first exhortation in the very next section at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. Thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generosity of dozens of folks just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at the link down in the notes below, or you can go to listenerscommentary.com and you can click the Give button and you can set up a monthly recurring donation or a one-time donation right there at listenerscommentary.com give. Thanks for your support.